Working Memory, a complete guide to how your brain processes information, thinks, and learns. Written by Scott Young and Jakob Yulik. How do you keep everything in mind when solving tough problems? When you read a book, listen to a podcast, or have a conversation, how does your brain hold on to all the information? The answer is something psychologists call working memory. Unlike long-term memory, which I've covered in depth in another guide, working memory isn't about remembering the past. Instead, it's about holding together the present in your mind so that you can learn, make decisions, and solve problems. Working memory is essentially your mental bandwidth. If you have a good working memory, or can use yours more effectively, you can think and learn better. Thus, understanding this important facet of your mind is essential for anyone who wants to perform better in work, school, and life. To give you that understanding, I've collaborated with Jakob Yilich, who has his Master's in Cognitive Science and is working on his PhD. We've put together a full guide to explain what your working memory is, how it works, and most of all, how you can apply simple methods to think and learn better. What is working memory? The four components underlying your ability to think and learn. So what is working memory? Well, the easiest way to understand working memory is by visualizing it as a carpenter's workbench. The carpenter temporarily places tools and materials on the workbench as she builds new products. The workbench has a small size. Only a few items can be placed on it at once. Similarly, you temporarily store information in your working memory when you're solving a problem or making a decision. Working memory also has a small capacity. It can only hold a few items at once. However, the workbench is not just for keeping materials in one place. It's a workspace. The carpenter uses it to combine different materials to create new products. Similarly, working memory is not just a simple storage container. Working memory enables you to generate new thoughts, change them, combine them, search them, or apply different rules or strategies to them, or do anything else that helps you navigate in your life. By enabling all of these functions, working memory underpins your thinking, planning, learning, and decision-making. Scientists have developed various models of working memory. So in this guide, Jakob and I will draw on the most popular model, which has been developed by Alan Badley. According to this model, working memory can be divided into four components. The first component is called the phonological loop. It is essentially a storage of sounds. It temporarily allows you to memorize digits, words, and sentences by the way they sound. The second component is called the visuospatial sketchpad. As the name suggests, the sketchpad stores two and three dimensional images of objects. The third component is the central executive. Its main responsibility is directing attention and manipulating information. So, Using our workbench analogy, you could think of the phonological loop and the visual spatial sketchpad as, as two different vices that hold material in position. Each vice can hold a different kind of material, such as wood or metal. Similarly, the phonological loop can hold sounds and the visual spatial sketchpad can hold images. You could think of the central executive as the carpenter herself. The carpenter decides which tools and materials are going to be used in the same way the central executive decides which things to pay attention to. She shapes metal and wood using chisels, saws, and drills to create a new product, such as a chair. Similarly, the central executive rearranges ideas and applies the rules of grammar, logic, and algebra to come up with a solution to a problem or make a decision. Badley's model also has a fourth component, the episodic buffer, which we won't cover here because it's not as well researched as the other three components. Now, you may have heard of the term short-term memory. Scientists currently use this term when they talk about simple temporary storage, but not the manipulation of information, which can be of any kind. The term working memory is used to talk about the whole storage and manipulation system. So to give a quick recap, here's the three main parts of working memory. The phonological loop, which stores sounds, including words, digits, sentences. The visuospatial sketchpad, which stores images of objects. The central executive, which directs attention and manipulates information. In this guide, we're going to look at these three components and see how they impact your learning. In addition, we're going to cover three other important topics which are closely connected to working memory. Chunking, the compression of information. Cognitive load, the processing demands placed on working memory. And anxiety, the culprit behind problems with working memory. Why working memory matters. Working memory is a key aspect of intelligence, 
Much of your learning depends on your working memory. So think about the last time you followed a hard class. In the beginning, you might have kept up fine, but eventually it became harder and harder to understand what the professor was saying. Even though you tried your best to pay attention, you left feeling confused and frustrated. It turns out that the likely culprit is overloaded working memory. The study material required your working memory to process too much new information at the same time. As a result, the system became overwhelmed and broke down. Even if you don't regularly attend confusing lectures, understanding how your working memory functions is essential for learning better. How working memory underpins your ability to learn. In order to learn, you must first comprehend. To do this, your working memory is always involved. Your phonological loop must keep track of the sounds and words you read or hear. Your central executive must constantly update these sequences as you go along. And finally, these meanings need to be integrated so you can understand everything. If any of these processes fail, you'll get lost and confused. Solving problems is also essential to learning. Once again, your working memory is working hard. Consider trying to solve the problem of adding two numbers, let's say 87 plus 65. Most of us learn how to add numbers like this in grade school. The solution is 152. But despite the simplicity, there's a lot of complicated cognition to pull off this calculation. Your visual-spatial sketchpad first has to store a visual representation of those symbols. Your central executive has to apply the rules of addition to store the intermediate steps, so for instance, 80 plus 60. Finally, your phonological loop has to maintain the subvocal instructions to control the operation, add 80 and 60, for instance. If any of these problems fail, the result, again, is confusion or getting the answer wrong. Besides comprehension and problem solving, working memory underpins many other learning skills. Note-taking requires you to quickly store and process what has just been said while simultaneously processing what is being said right now. It shouldn't surprise you that working memory capacity has been found to be significantly connected to reading comprehension, math skills, and problem solving. Students who have better working memory enjoy better grades, and more importantly, higher working memory capacity predicts better learning outcomes and achievement. Can you improve your working memory? You've probably heard of memory experts who can remember astonishingly long sequences of random digits or words. For example, Rajan Mahadevan is able to correctly retrieve a staggering 31,811 digits of the mathematical constant pi. He can also remember up to 63 randomly presented digits or words. Another mnemonicist, Suresh Kumar Sharma, holds the Guinness World Record for managing to recite pi to 70,030 digits without making any mistakes. Now, you may be thinking that it's impossible to achieve such amazing feats unless you're born naturally gifted. And although both of these memory experts likely have an above-average working memory since childhood, genetic predispositions are by no means the whole story. If these champions were naturally blessed with a fantastic working memory, then we would expect them to excel in all tasks requiring working memory, right? Researchers decided to test this idea. Instead of digits or words, they gave Raja and Mahadevan a series of symbols, such as exclamation mark, the at symbol, asterisk, plus sign, and so on. Can you guess how many symbols he managed to remember? To everyone's surprise, he could only keep six of these symbols in his working memory, the same as the average university student. When interviewing these and other mnemonicists, scientists found that they had devoted extensive time to practice to hone their memory, What's more important, they used highly sophisticated and refined versions of mnemonic techniques such as the method of loci and the story method. All of these results suggest that working memory is, to some degree, a skill like any other. If you practice it, you can improve it in specific domains. While the jury is still out about whether it is still possible to improve the core processes of working memory, scientists have discovered many techniques that help you make your working memory more efficient and effective. In the following sections, we'll describe how you can apply these techniques to boost your comprehension and problem-solving skills. How can you measure your working memory? So if you set out to improve your working memory, it can be useful to know how you can measure it. Scientists distinguish between short-term memory capacity and working memory capacity. Short-term capacity is simply your ability to temporarily store small amounts of information. This information can be digits, letters, words, symbols, pictures, scenes, or anything really. Short-term memory span is the number of items that you can store in your short-term memory. The average human span is four items, although the exact number depends on the type of items. 
People can typically remember more letters than words and more digits than letters. The average digit span is around seven digits. Working memory capacity is your combined ability to store and manipulate information. It's traditionally measured with complex span tasks, such as operation span and the famous NBAC test. These tests can't be taken online, but you can download some if you follow a link to the original guide. Phonological loop, how music disrupts your studies. The phonological loop is the first kind of short-term memory storage which stores sounds. Being able to have a conversation, listen to music, and understand a lecture all depend on your phonological loop. When you're reading a text, your phonological loop is working at every moment. It uses subvocalization, your internal voice, to translate visual information, digits, letters, words, and sentences, into auditory information, which is then processed to extract meaning. If the subvocalization process is disrupted, it will be harder to maintain information inside your phonological loop. As a consequence, your comprehension will suffer. To see this on yourself, try the following experiment. Now, if you haven't already done so, you can measure your digit span. And after you're done that, you can measure your digit span again. Now, this time, however, you should first start playing a favorite song of yours that contains lyrics. It shouldn't be a purely instrumental piece. Set the volume to a comfortable level, not too quiet but not too loud, and now measure your digit span. It is likely that your digit span is now one or th more digits lower than it was before. This is because the music interfered with the subvocalization process, which was thus less effective at encoding information in your phonological loop. Are all sounds equally harmful to learning? Many studies have shown that listening to many kinds of sounds in music can have a profoundly negative impact on your working memory, reading comprehension, and mathematical problem solving. For instance, one study has shown that students who revise in a quiet environment later perform 60% better in an SAT comprehension test than the peers who listen to music with lyrics. However, different kinds of sounds have different effects. Firstly, the detrimental effect is much stronger with vocal music compared to instrumental music. One study showed that students who revise without music were 10% better than students who revise while listening to instrumental music. Secondly, it doesn't matter whether or not you understand the language. Foreign language also impairs working memory. Thirdly, although even pure tones can disrupt performance, tones have to fluctuate. If the pure tone has a constant pitch, turns out it doesn't have a harmful effect on memory. Does music affect everyone the same way? Listening to music doesn't affect everyone in the same way. In general, individuals with a higher working memory capacity are more resistant to the effects of music. However, Students are very bad at predicting what effect music will have on their performance. Interestingly enough, the students who prefer listening to music while studying are also those whose reading comprehension is likely to suffer due to interference from music. Why do so many students listen to music although it impairs their learning? Why do they even feel that they benefit from this? So there are two reasons for believing this. First, music might help reduce anxiety and help you calm yourself down, which might be beneficial for studying. Secondly, music could help drown out an even more disrupting external noise, which might actually help protect your working memory. Interestingly, although white noise seems to worsen the performance of students with normal attention, it can actually improve the performance of students with attention problems. In general, we would recommend that you avoid listening to music while studying, especially those that have lyrics. It's important that you study in a quiet environment where nobody is speaking or making any other noise. The exception to this rule is when you're preparing for an exam that will take place in a noisy environment. In that case, it might be beneficial to spend at least some time revising in a noisy environment. And to see why, you can listen to the complete guide on memory where we talk about context dependence for memory. If you cannot revise in a quiet environment, the best way to reduce noise is by using earplugs. Alternatively, a not too harmful option is to listen to white noise. There's a plethora of white noise nature sounds on YouTube or Spotify if you're looking for one. If you do have to listen to music, go for instrumental music as opposed to ones that have lyrics. How to use sound to boost your learning. The first strategy to improve your learning is by protecting your phonological loop from interfering sounds. Scientists have found that another strategy that significantly boosts learning is also making the use of sounds. In an intriguing study, students had to memorize a list of words. The first group read the words aloud, the second listened to a recording of their own voice reading the words, and the third group listened to someone else, while the fourth group studied the words in silence. 
Interestingly, the first group showed the best performance, about 20% better than the fourth group, followed by the second, third, and then finally the fourth group. The advantage of reading aloud over reading silently for subsequent memory performance is called the production effect. Scientists believe that producing words makes them more distinctive than reading them silently because you additionally use your focal cords and facial muscles. To harness the production effect, however, you shouldn't read aloud all of your study material. Distinctiveness is relative. A word read aloud will stand out in the context of silently read words, but it won't stand out if all the other words are also read aloud. Therefore, to get the most benefit, we recommend that you use the production effect only for a selection of the most important information. In summary, we recommend the following for studying better. Ideally, avoid noise during learning and don't listen to any kind of music. The best way to drown out noise is to use earplugs or by listening to white noise. If you do have to listen to music because it helps you calm down or because you're in a noisy environment, choose instrumental music with no lyrics. Finally, to boost your comprehension and memory, read aloud what you're studying, but only apply this to a selection of the most important concepts and information. If you read everything aloud, it probably won't work. The Visual Spatial Sketchpad. Upgrade your imagination. The Visual Spatial Sketchpad is the second kind of short-term memory storage. It stores two or three-dimensional objects and their positions in space. The Visual Spatial Sketchpad is essential for understanding mathematical, scientific, technological, and engineering topics. Visual spatial working memory capacity in childhood reliably predicts mathematical achievements in adolescence even when other factors such as intelligence are controlled for. Strategies for improving your visual spatial working memory. In a stunning study, researchers from Berkeley examined the visual spatial sketchpad skills of engineering students. They found that men performed on average about 10% better than women in various tasks such as mental rotation of objects. The researchers later interviewed experienced engineers and asked them to share their strategies for solving these kinds of problems. On the basis of these strategies, they designed a visual spatial training program. All the women who had lower scores were invited to attend the program. Interestingly, after only three hours of training, there were no longer any differences between the men and the women. This study demonstrates how the use of appropriate strategies can substantially and quickly help your visual spatial sketchpad in solving specific problems. Which strategies are best? Well, in the study mentioned above, the researchers found that different engineers use different strategies that achieve the same result. Therefore, there doesn't seem to be a right strategy for approaching these kinds of problems. However, you can develop your own strategy. So, if you are following on the ebook, then you can see the actual diagrams that are presented here. Otherwise, I'll just describe them, but don't expect to be able to solve them from a narration alone. So, in the original essay, you can have a look at the picture, and it shows a folded unfolded cube which is in a kind of a cross shape that has different symbols on each side and the question is which one of the folded cubes matches or does not match with the unfolded diagram. So this requires you to look at the flattened image mentally fold it in your imagination and then decide which one is correct. Now there are two broad strategies for these kinds of problems. A holistic strategy considers first folding the cube then rotating it mentally as a whole and comparing it with the other folding cubes. This is the most working memory intensive strategy. In contrast, an analytic strategy notices the relationships between the patterns in a step-by-step -step way. So let's walk through an analytic strategy to mentally folding a cube. So if you look at a folded cube, you can ask yourself, is the white cross above the black X? And can the five dots be on the right if that's the case? And then you can look at the unfolded cube. Visualize the unfolded cube in such a way that the white cross is above the black X. From this position, you can easily see that the first folded cube would be the same as the unfolded cube. Now, if you're the kind of person that can use the holistic approach of just folding up the cube from the flat image and then rotating it mentally, it's likely that your visual spatial sketchback has a high capacity. If not, then you can benefit from using the piecemeal approach. The whole idea is to offload information from your working memory, to break down the task into smaller, more manageable pieces, and to store intermediate steps on paper. And this way you can achieve the same result as someone with a high working memory capacity, albeit perhaps a little more slowly. How to use visualization and drawing to improve learning. The visual spatial sketchpad is useful not only for visual spatial problems. The phonological loop and the visual spatial sketchpad are largely independent of each other. Therefore, if you can use your visual spatial sketchpad to help your phonological loop and vice versa, you can increase your working memory capacity. 
A beautiful demonstration of how the visual spatial sketchpad can help the phonological loop was carried out by scientists who examined Japanese experts on mental calculation. These experts have a very high digit span, about 16 numbers, and they can quickly subtract and add numbers having up to nine digits. Where does this miraculous ability come from? Through practice, the experts have learned to construct a virtual abacus in their minds that they can use to make calculations. While a mental abacus is probably no longer needed in the age of computers, you can use visualization in other ways. If you're going shopping and want to remember a shopping list, you can chunk it into one picture. For instance, you could imagine peppers, cereal, milk, chicken, and mustard as a mustard-covered chicken swimming in a bowl of cereal surrounded by peppers. Visualization strategies can be beneficial for your reading comprehension as well. In an interesting study, researchers asked students to read a scientific text from chemistry. One group of students was given no strategy, one group was asked to focus on the text, summarizing and finding the main points, whereas the last group was asked to use the drawing construction strategy, draw molecules and their bonds. At the end of the study session, students were assessed with a test. One would expect that focusing on the text, finding its main points, and being able to summarize it should be the key ingredients of reading comprehension. However, the results showed the exact opposite. The drawing students outperformed the no strategy students by about 30%. And what's more, summarizing actually worsened the performance of the text focus group compared to the control group. Although the drawing construction strategy improves students' comprehension of particular scientific texts, research has yet to show whether it generalizes to all subjects or all kinds of texts. You need to experiment with yourself to find out when and how diagramming can be useful and when it's not. Moreover, the quality of the drawings is essential for the technique to be effective. This means your drawings need to be a faithful representation of the contents of the text, correctly capturing the relationships between different concepts. Therefore, it undoubtedly takes some practice to master the skill of visualization. Nevertheless, although drawing is not an out-of-the-box strategy, if done well, it can become a powerful technique in your learning arsenal. In summary, we recommend the following. Don't worry if you have problems with visuospatial tasks. It's mostly a matter of choosing the right strategy and practicing. Using the analytic strategy, a step-by-step -step approach to solve visual-spatial tasks, you can break down complex tasks into smaller components and then offload the results of intermediate steps onto paper. Try the drawing construction strategy to help you with reading comprehension. This strategy can make you process the information more deeply and visualize relationships. The central executive, how to concentrate your mind easily. The central executive is the third component of working memory. A central executive has many functions. Here, we'll focus on the allocation of attention and the manipulation of information. The hidden costs of multitasking. Selective attention is the ability to direct cognitive resources to things which are relevant to the task at hand and to filter out everything else. Trying to pay attention to multiple things at the same time, multitasking, is generally harmful for performance. Using our workbench analogy from the beginning, imagine that we asked our carpenter to chisel, saw, and drill several different pieces of wood at the same time. The result of such efforts would likely be a shoddy product. Unsurprisingly, a wealth of studies have shown that detrimental effects of multitasking on comprehension, learning, and students' grades. As a matter of fact, multitasking is a bit of a misnomer. True multitasking is quite rare because it's very difficult to pay attention to two things at the same time. Multitasking typically consists of switching back and forth between multiple tasks rather than simultaneously focusing on each of them. Multitasking is inefficient because each switch that you make incurs a cost. If you're oscillating between reading your notes and checking your phone, for instance, each switch takes some time and energy. You have to shift your goals. Uh, now I want to focus on this instead of that. You need to reactivate the rules for the activity you're switching to, uh, read a paragraph, typing a response. Although one task switch may only take a few seconds and seem insignificant, all the myriad switching done within one day can add up to a substantial amount of time and eat away at your productivity. Who is affected by multitasking? The negative effect of multitasking can be quite insidious. In a series of studies, researchers had students read a text passage and assess their comprehension with tests. Some students also carried out an interruption test, solving a math problem between each paragraph. Researchers found that the interruption had no effect on students' knowledge. They could correctly answer questions despite the interruption. However, when global comprehension was assessed, the text's theme, tone, the author's goals and morale, the interruption worsened performance by as much as 30%. 
This study nicely demonstrates that you might feel that multitasking is not affecting your performance based on the fact that you can remember everything from the text pretty easily. However, your comprehension, which requires synthesizing information from different parts of the text, could still suffer. It may come as a surprise, but multitasking is not always harmful. What matters is whether the two tasks employ the same cognitive processes. This happens, for instance, when you're watching television while you're reading notes. Doing these two activities simultaneously is going to interfere with your comprehension as both of these activities compete for access to your phonological loop. However, reading a book while sitting on a train or practicing flashcards while commuting will likely not substantially impair your comprehension. So, personal note, I was listening to music while I was drawing the images when I was illustrating this post, but I never listened to music while writing for this very reason. Research has shown that individuals with a high working memory capacity are more resistant to the negative effects of multitasking, especially if the secondary task is not too demanding. Therefore, if you have high working memory capacity, you might be able to multitask a little without substantially hurting your performance in a, in a way that if you have a low working memory capacity, it could be disastrous. How badly designed textbooks split your attention. Multitasking is a form of dividing your attention. Besides different activities like watching TV or reading notes, attention can also be divided among different study materials. If you have multiple source materials, which you have to look at while studying, then your comprehension will suffer. This is called the split attention effect. So as an example, consider having to solve a geometry diagram. In one, you have the angles labeled on the actual diagram. On the other, they are labeled on a key, which you have to mentally reference each time you want to see what the angle is. Now, when experimenters do tasks like this, they find that those who have to split their attention between the key and the actual diagram tend to perform worse in learning the material because they have to devote more cognitive bandwidth to being able to integrate them together. The split attention task places an unnecessary load on the central executive, which had to shift attention between the text and the picture and combine it together again to enable understanding. This was essentially extra manipulation of information that had nothing to do with solving the actual task. In contrast, the second task freed up cognitive resources, the one that had the angles labeled directly on the diagram, and so that extra cognitive resources could be devoted directly to solving the task. Researchers have found that if study materials is presented in an integrated format, then comprehension improves dramatically. One study reported a 30% improvement compared to the split attention format. This effect has been found for all kinds of subjects, including geometry, programming, geography, and engineering. So let's consider another example. Say you're making flashcards for learning Chinese characters. In one, you could put the Chinese characters next to the pronunciation. In another, you could put the Chinese characters above the pronunciation. So in one of them, the left to right orientation means that you have to visually manipulate and drag over one of the characters to something else on the space, whereas the other one they correspond directly so it's easier to see where they belong. With this split attention example, it places a demand on your central executive, which has to figure out the way the Chinese character is equivalent to its phonological pronunciation. Presenting flashcards in this way substantially harms later recall. Now you may not be able to select your study materials or perhaps there's no textbooks or lecture notes available which present your material in an integrative way. However, you need not depend on the particular way your study materials are structured. When taking notes, make sure you have all your information in one place. Stick to the rule one concept must fit on one page. If you can't fit one concept on one page, you need to break it down into smaller concepts. Pay attention to how your study materials are structured. If you have to study from multiple sources, different textbooks or notebooks, it might be a good idea to combine the information to put it all into one place by rewriting or photocopying, for instance. If this is too cumbersome, then try drawing a diagram, concept map, or an outline of what you're studying. That can also help. If you have difficulty understanding a concept, redraw graphs or rewrite your notes so that everything is integrated in one place. This will free up your precious working memory resources, which you'll be able to devote to comprehension. In summary, avoid multitasking and interruptions even if you feel like they're not affecting you. The negative effect can be well hidden from your sight. 
Multitasking will not affect your learning and performance only if the two or more activities you're doing simultaneously don't share the same working memory resources. So for instance, practicing flashcards while you're commuting or listening to music, a phonological loop activity while you are drawing, a visual spatial sketchbag activity. When studying, put all the information relevant to one concept into one place to prevent divided attention. Try to find study materials which feature integrated information, so graphs and text combined together rather than presented separately or in a key that you have to look up. If necessary, redraw or photocopy different parts of your notes, textbooks, or lecture notes so that everything is integrated. Finally, when you design your own study materials like flashcards, do it in an integrated way so you can boost your recall. Chunking, the secret to expertise. For two years, researchers followed a single student of average intelligence and short-term memory capacity. Every day, the student had to listen to sequences of digits. While at the start, he could only recall about four digits, by the end of the study, he managed to correctly remember a series of 80 digits. When interviewing the students, the researchers found that he was a competitive runner. When hearing the sequences of digits, the student transformed every four digits into a running time. So for instance, 3492 was transformed into 3 minutes and 49.2 seconds. In this way, he effectively compressed 4 units of information into 1 unit of information. The process of compressing information is called chunking. To see how chunking works, you can try the following experiment. So I'm going to read aloud 10 letters, and you're going to try to remember as many of them as possible. R T C T A I I L F S O. Okay, how many of those do you remember? Now, do the same with these letters F R A C T O L I S T I C. Okay, well, chances are you're probably not going to remember very much from the first list, but if you were spelling along properly, it probably was something that was a bit easier to remember because the second word had some word phrases that are common in English. So you could even pronounce it, fractalistic. What's going on here? Well, the letters in both lists are the same, but they're arranged differently. In the first list, you had to memorize all 12 letters independently, which is way above the average short-term memory span. In the second list, you were not memorizing letters. Instead, you could probably memorize them into syllables, fractalistic. And four is probably doable for most people if you're able to parse it. The key idea behind chunking is that if you group the underlying items by some sort of meaning or structure, then the group will become a single unit. Although short-term memory can only hold about four chunks at a time, these chunks can be fairly complex. How to use chunking as a mnemonic technique. So you can easily use chunking to memorize phone numbers, passwords, or PIN codes. Simply divide the given sequence into chunks containing the maximum of four items each. So for instance, to remember the phone number 7432930045, we split the number with dashes 7432930045. In this way, you only have to remember three chunks of information instead of nine separate digits. Now if you're interested in a more advanced method of mnemonics for remembering long sequences, you can have a look at the phonetic number system. You can also use chunking to boost your learning. A useful chunking technique is organization. Organization is where you categorize unstructured study material into meaningful groups. For instance, you can group foreign language vocabulary based on topics, similar meanings, or similar pronunciation. The structure can also be more complicated. The structure can also be more complex or hierarchical. For instance, you can study chemical elements grouped by their various properties. Research shows that people can memorize up to twice as many hierarchically organized items than unorganized items. Chunking works by reducing working memory load. Chunking reduces the load on working memory because it replaces items in your working memory with items in your long-term memory. To see how this works, try the following experiment. Memorize the following list of six words. You have five seconds. Large, run, tremble, believe, fish, series. How many words do you remember? Now memorize another list of six words. Besar, Belari, Gemetar, Perkaya, Ikan, Siri. How many words do you remember now? Well, although the second list contained the same number of words, which have actually the same meaning and almost the same number of letters in total, you probably remembered fewer words than the second list from the first list. How is that possible? Well, as an English speaker, you probably knew all the words from the first list. 
However, unless you speak Malay, the language of the second words, you probably didn't know any of the words from the second list. The first list was easier precisely because you could use your pre-existing knowledge of English vocabulary stored in your long-term memory. You simply downloaded each word from your long-term memory as a chunk. In contrast, since you couldn't retrieve the Malay words, or if you're a Malaysian speaker, probably couldn't understand my pronunciation, from your long-term memory, you could only download smaller chunks from your long-term memory, syllables or letters or sounds. As a result, there were many more pieces of information that had to be stored in your working memory from the second list. Researchers have found that although humans have a very limited working memory capacity, their long-term working memory capacity can be astonishingly high. In one study, scientists asked subjects to look at 2,500 pictures for three seconds each. After that, they asked them about the details of selected pictures, such as the positions of objects, their shapes, and their colors. Surprisingly, subjects were 90% accurate at remembering the details of these pictures. Therefore, the most powerful way you can free up your working memory capacity is by drawing on your long-term memory resources. The more knowledge you have stored in your long-term memory, the less information you need to process with your working memory, and the easier it will be to understand your study materials and solve problems. How experts use chunks. Chunking is the secret behind acquiring mastery in any subject. Alternative explanations have also been proposed, so you can also look at Erickson and Walter Kinch's long-term working memory hypothesis. This is because any kind of complex skill essentially is a huge chunk containing large numbers of nested chunks. Consider playing the piano. Playing the piano consists of many skills, such as sight reading, finger techniques, understanding of rhythm, pushing the pedals, and many more. Each of these skills also consists of further subskills. For instance, sight reading requires knowledge of keys, notes, scales, and various musical symbols denoting rhythm and volume. For a novice player, doing all these things at the same time is nearly impossible. And yet, expert musicians can play complex pieces with little effort, even by sight reading only. Expert musicians can play the piano with little effort precisely because they do not have to retrieve each individual skill separately. That would overload their working memory and make performance impossible. Instead, they retrieve one large chunk from their long-term memory that contains all of these sub-skills compressed within it. This saves precious working memory resources which can be devoted to processing other information such as sight reading. Therefore, to master any subject, you first need to build a solid foundation of the basics, the elementary chunks. Only then can you attempt to form increasingly complex chunks. Build chunks with pre-training. Understanding chunking can help you with your comprehension and problem-solving skills. If you're experiencing difficulty understanding your studying material or cannot solve a problem, then it's likely that your working memory is overloaded. Working memory becomes overloaded if it has to process too much information at the same time. This typically happens when you don't have sufficient knowledge of the prerequisites. If this is the case, practicing your target skill, solving many differential equations, likely won't be of much help or it will be inefficient. A far superior strategy is to first identify the underlying subskills, arithmetic, algebra, that you may be lacking and master these first. This way you can save yourself substantial amounts of time and energy. If you have difficulty understanding something, first identify the underlying chunks and store them in your long-term memory. This technique is called pre-training. Pre-training is very effective for all kinds of subjects. So as an illustration, consider the following study. Students were taught about the car braking system. One group was first introduced to the names of each component, the pedals, the piston, the master cylinder, and their locations. Only once they had mastered the individual components were they taught about the behavior and how they work together to achieve braking. In contrast, the second group of students was taught all information at the same time. Although both groups were exposed to identical information, the pre-training procedure led to substantially better comprehension and recall, up to 30%, than those that were presented all the information at the same time. You can use pre-training to approach any study material. First, identify the key concepts and vocabulary. Second, use the internet or any other resources to find the simple definitions. Third, begin to explore how the concepts relate to another. Third, begin to explore how the concepts relate to one another. In all courses and textbooks, it is often the case that each new lecture or chapter requires some knowledge of the previous chapters. If you're having difficulty understanding a lecture, you might be missing something from the previous lectures and you need to restudy it. If you have trouble solving mathematical problems, it's likely that you don't have properly formed chunks for the underlying operations. For instance, it's difficult to solve a differential equation without the knowledge of algebra, rearranging equations, or arithmetic, 
addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. If you master the underlying subskills first, then the mathematics will be much easier. Our general recommendations are the following. Use chunking to compress information so that you can remember more. You can chunk your study materials by grouping concepts into categories. For instance, you can group foreign language vocabulary by topics, meaning, or pronunciation. To gain expertise in any subject or skill, you need to build increasingly complex chunks of information. You can do this with pre-training, pre-studying the definitions and meanings of concepts before your lecture or before you read a textbook. If you don't understand something, try to identify what exactly you're having problems with and study this first. Finally, master the underlying sub-skills and then practice your target skill to save time and energy. Cognitive load, the culprit behind learning difficulties. So far, we've talked about the various ways that you can reduce the load placed on your working memory in order to boost your comprehension and problem-solving skills. Scientists have developed the theory of cognitive load, which explores in detail the different kinds of load that can be placed on working memory. Cognitive load is defined as the effort used by the working memory system to process information. The main idea of cognitive load theory is that working memory capacity is limited. If the working memory resources that are needed to process information are greater than your capacity, then you will fail to understand and learn. Using our workbench analogy, this would be comparable to our carpenter trying to work with too many tools and materials on the bench at the same time, which would start falling off the workbench as a result. In this theory, there are three types of cognitive load, intrinsic, extrinsic, and germane. All types of load are additive. Their sum makes the overall load on your working memory. Reduce intrinsic load with segmenting and worked examples. Intrinsic load is the cognitive effort that is associated with a task. It's basically the level of difficulty of the subject. So as an illustration, you can compare the obvious differences between solving a simple calculation, 2 plus 2 equals blank, and a complicated differential equation. Intrinsic load is fixed for a particular kind of task and for each individual, given their current level of abilities. High intrinsic load can be beneficial as it stimulates effective learning. However, if it exceeds your working memory resources, it can impair your learning. One way you can reduce intrinsic load is by gaining more knowledge of the underlying chunks that we previously discussed. Another way is to reduce the complexity of the material. You can reduce complexity by segmenting and sequencing. Instead of reading a textbook chapter all at once, split it up into bite-sized chunks. Separate long passages of text graphically, so draw a line to create new paragraphs if necessary. When you're done this, study the information step by step. If you come across a graph or a passage you cannot understand, cover up parts of it and focus on smaller elements. The less information you need to process at one time, the easier it is to understand. Another great way to reduce complexity is by going through worked examples. Worked examples guide you through each step of the problem solving process and teach you the model that you can use to apply to new problems. Worked examples are especially useful during the early stages of learning. Many textbooks now have worked examples. However, be careful. Badly designed worked examples are useless. Good worked examples have clear language and graphics that are easy to follow. If your worked example is difficult to understand and causes high cognitive load, then you need to find a different one. Reduce extrinsic load with visually simple textbooks and a goal-free approach. In contrast with intrinsic load, extrinsic load is associated with the way study material is presented. If you're experiencing difficulty understanding something, it might be because of high extrinsic load. Perhaps your lecturer is difficult to understand. Maybe your textbook or notes are not well-written or understandable. Do not feel that you're stuck with whatever your course offers you. Devoting some time before you start learning to finding high-quality materials is definitely a worthwhile investment. One reason that study materials may impose a high cognitive load is because they contain a lot of redundant information. Authors of textbooks often try to make them visually appealing by including lots of unnecessary decoration, photos, and graphics. The rule of thumb is that the more visually appealing a textbook is, the higher the extrinsic load it will impose. Unless they are used for explanation of the study material, graphics tend to burden the visual-spatial sketchpad and distract from learning the material. Another way you can reduce extrinsic load is by approaching problems in a goal-free way. So, for instance, if you are trying to solve a geometrical equation where you're looking for a particular angle, instead you can just try to calculate as many angles as possible. If you have a given goal, then you have to process the goal, the problem givens, and the difference between the goals simultaneously. In a goal-free approach, you only focus on the current state and how you might be able to get to the next state. 
As a result, the extrinsic load on your working memory is decreased. The goal-free approach is particularly suitable for math or programming. For instance, if you have a programming assignment, instead of trying to solve it straight away, firstly try to explore its components. Play with different functions, see what kinds of inputs they take and what outputs they produce. Similarly, if you're solving a math or geometry problem, don't try to reach the goal immediately. Instead, explore the problem and calculate the different things in a step-by-step -step way. How to optimize cognitive load. The final type of cognitive load is called germane load. Germane load is the effort that you have to make in order to construct integrated chunks of information from the concepts and the materials you study. To successfully learn something, you need to devote some of your working memory resources to germane load. To achieve this, you need to minimize the amount of extrinsic load and optimize the level of intrinsic load. How do you know which type of cognitive load is causing you problems? Well, researchers have developed a simple questionnaire that reliably tells apart different types of cognitive load. In essence, if you feel that the activity, covered concepts, formulas, or definitions are complex, then the intrinsic load is likely the culprit. However, if you feel that the instructions or explanations are unclear or ineffective or full of unclear language, then the problem probably lies with high extrinsic load. In summary, we recommend the following. If your study materials feel too complex, then you need to reduce your intrinsic load. If your study materials feel unclear or confusing, then you need to reduce your extrinsic load. To reduce intrinsic load, use segmenting and sequencing or find some worked examples. To reduce extrinsic load, find study materials with clear language, modest graphics, and approach problem solvings in a goal-free way. Anxiety. How to turn it into excitement. So far, we've covered various things that can place a load on your working memory and impair your comprehension and problem-solving skills. It turns out that one of the major causes of cognitive load is anxiety. Try to imagine how our carpenter would perform if she felt anxious. Her hands would probably tremble and she'd have difficulty concentrating. In fact, she might even drill a hole in the wrong place or saw off an important part, spoiling the final product. Anxiety is especially harmful in mathematics, but it can also worsen performance in other subjects. One would expect that individuals with an already low working memory capacity would be most affected by anxiety. However, the opposite is true. High working memory capacity individuals use high demand strategies for solving problems. Performance pressure takes away the resources that these individuals use to solve problems. Why does anxiety burden our working memory? Scientists believe that when you are anxious, your working memory is preoccupied with anxious thoughts. So instead of at the task at hand, your short-term storage is filled with irrelevant information. In particular, verbal rumination, so subvocally repeating anxious thoughts, interferes with the phonological loop. Anxious thoughts can also be associated with images, which occupy the visual-spatial sketchpad. Moreover, if you pay attention to these anxious thoughts, this also places demands on the central executive. Math anxiety can be a learned phenomenon. Researchers believe that we learn anxiety from our parents or peers when they help us with homework. They give out verbal and nonverbal signals that math is something difficult and anxiety-provoking. Unfortunately, math anxiety can also be caused by teachers. Teachers who themselves are insecure about their mathematical ability tend to give harsh feedback, use defective teaching methods, or spread the toxic belief that some people can never be good at math. All of these factors can have a severe impact on students' mathematical abilities and self-confidence. How you can overcome anxiety. Now, it may be impossible to change your school or university teacher. However, in the age of the internet, you're not bound to one incompetent teacher. For math in particular, you can check out online courses and websites. For instance, Khan Academy has excellent resources for learning mathematics. And they can guide you through the entire curriculum step-by-step -step in a calm, reassuring voice completely for free. Don't let a bad teacher spoil your experience with math. Ignore them, take the initiative, and switch to someone better. In addition, you can take steps to effectively address your own anxiety. It turns out that the effect that anxiety has on your performance largely depends on the beliefs you have about it. If you believe that math anxiety will harm you, then you will perform worse. On the other hand, if you believe that math anxiety will help you perform better, then it won't impact you. One way to overcome anxiety is through a technique called cognitive reappraisal. Try to think of the anxiety not as anxiety, but excitement. These two emotions are both arousing, in that they make you feel more alert, and they seem to be quite similar physiologically. Researchers have found that although such a simple reframing of your emotions doesn't change your anxiety level or bodily response, so your heart rate, it does improve your performance. You can reframe your mindset by using subvocalization or speaking aloud to yourself. 
In particular, you can override the anxious thoughts by repeating excitement-promoting mantras. So I'm excited about this. Often it's as simple as that. Even reading an article about the benefits of short-term stress can help. Another technique that has been found effective is expressive writing or journaling. If you're anxious about a test or exam, write about your thoughts and your worries. By writing these down, you can offload them from your working memory. Expressive writing is especially effective if you elaborate in detail on your deep feelings and what in particular is causing you to feel anxious. In summary, we recommend the following. If your teacher is making you anxious about math, ignore them and find a better one online, for instance, Khan Academy. Use cognitive reappraisal and subvocalization to transform anxiety into excitement and use expressive writing to offload your worries from memory onto paper. Summary and conclusion. All right, let's recap what we've learned. Your working memory is the workbench of your mind. It keeps track of what you're seeing, hearing, thinking, and imagining, while allowing you to work with that to produce long-term memories and solutions. The most popular scientific model has four components, of which we've reviewed the most well-studied three. The phonological loop, which keeps track of what you've just heard. It's also used to subvocalize thoughts while reading, speaking, or thinking. The visual-spatial sketchpad, which keeps track of pictures and spatial information, and the central executive, which allocates attention and manipulates information, just like a carpenter on the workbench. The most important finding about working memory is that it is limited. The average person can only hold four to seven pieces of information at a time. The flip side of this is that we can chunk information. By combining complex information into recognizable chunks, even super complicated things can fit into your mental workbench. To make best use of your working memory, Avoid music and distracting sounds while doing mentally demanding work and studying. Emphasize the most important information by speaking it aloud. Use visual mnemonics to keep track of more ideas at once. Visualization can improve studying over merely summarizing for some subjects. Try to apply your imagination more when you study. If you struggle with a problem, break it into simple parts. And mastery comes from chunking, building up stored patterns so complex things become simple. In addition to the components of working memory, we talked about three other issues, chunking, cognitive load, and anxiety. Cognitive load determines a lot about what makes something difficult or confusing. In particular, there are three types of cognitive load. Intrinsic load, the difficulty of the concept or skill itself. Extrinsic load, difficulties due to poor presentation, instruction, or extra problem-solving work. Three, germane load, effort required to make new chunks and remember. You can mitigate intrinsic load by pre-training, breaking down a complex subject into simpler parts, which you master first before moving on. You can ease extrinsic load by finding good resources for learning or reorganizing confusing ones. And finally, anxiety has a big impact on working memory. By crowding out the information you need to process, distracting thoughts can make it very hard to perform. Try reframing your anxiety's excitement, seeking confident instructors, and journaling your thoughts to make it easier. Thanks for listening to this episode. More episodes like this can be found by searching for Scott Young Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on most other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show as it helps other people find out about it. More of my work can be found on my website at scotthyoung.com.